0: listening to the Recovering Methodism podcast, a global Methodist voice for navigating life and ministry in the 21st century. Tackling the issues impacting the church and recovering the distinctly Methodist practices to participate in the next great awakening. And now your hosts, David Cady and Caleb Spiker.
1: Dave Katie. Is that my new theme song? Is that my walk-up song to the pulpit now? Is that what we're doing?
2: Well, I just, you know, my kids have really gotten into Weird Al Yankovic in like the last two weeks. So last night, we were just sitting around taking songs and changing them, you know, largely based on our lives. And that was one of uh, one of the creations that dude looks like Dave Cady. Well,
1: I'll tell you, that's there's nothing new under the sun. So it's been done before, but I'm glad it popped up in Union County last night. That's good to know. All right. Um, but it's good to be back on our podcast. And Yeah,
2: you know, it just occurred to me. Oh, no. Uh, you know, there's that really sort of chill intro and, uh, and and Homa's soothing voice and then...
1: Well, yeah, you blew past that a long time ago. So we're good, though. Yeah. All right. Nothing. People are awake and, and dialed in. <laughs> Like, what's happened? Either that or turned it off, one or the other. (laughs) So for those of you who stayed, we're glad you're here. Is my car broken? (laughs) You have found the Recovering Methodism podcast coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, at the Riverside Church, right here in Upper Arlington, in the heart of Columbus, Ohio. Just a stone's throw from the Ohio State University. That's the place. Go Bucks!
2: I've uh, I've disaffiliated from fandom. No,
1: no, 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 no. Just stay tuned. It'll be fine. <laughs> Let's get into the topic of the day. All right, we're going to start with a big idea. It's kind of, it's kind of our our Christmas focused podcast. Yeah. All right. We find ourselves in December, looking towards this great celebration. Our big idea. We're also on Christmas Eve, right? Everybody's busy. Planning an Advent and getting ready for Christmas Eve in just a few weeks, and we thought we'd talk about Christmas Eve services in the local church.
2: Yeah, it's it's our Super Bowl, man.
1: Christmas Eve is our Super Bowl. It's our big night,
2: right? Doesn't uh, get any bigger. It doesn't. Right? What
1: about what about Holy Week? Now that's our World Series. That's right. Right? There are it's a four game sweep that week, right? Yep. But we're in Super Bowl mode for Christmas Eve. So I know that there are folks tuned in, uh, planning their own Christmas Eve services. And uh, today we're going to talk about some of the low-hanging fruit and necessary aspects mm-hmm. of Christmas Eve.
2: Well, and I'm, I'm glad you said uh, low-hanging fruit because this is, uh, this is not a time to get cute or silly. Um, like this is, this is the time to uh, keep it down the middle of the fairway. I agree with in, you in every aspect of the service, right? I, I agree with you. And You gave us a great example of being cute and silly with the opening
1: to the podcast. So
2: I had to get out of my system.
1: Yeah, we had to kind of describe what that looks like, and you know, we don't want to do that.
2: No, no, no. It is it is unnecessary uh, to go up there and like sing Leonard Cohen and pretend that that's somehow a Christmas carol. You got right? it.
1: So let's talk about planning Christmas Eve in the local church. Whether it's one service, whether it's multiple services, whether there are multiple services that are identical, some mm. churches do that, mm-hmm. or there are multiple services that are very unique, which is really what we do. Mm-hmm. Here at Riverside, we have three Christmas Eve services, if you're in the Columbus area on the 24th of December. 5.30 is our family service. Yep. Uh, 7.30 is our traditional service. Um, Christmas Eve service with the choir, and then eleven o'clock is our um, sort of Silent Night, Holy Night moment with communion at the end. Yeah. So they're very different, and yet very similar. So, um, let's just let's just talk about it's the Methodist Midnight Mass. You got it. You got. It. Let's talk about a few, a few things regarding planning Christmas Eve, and I'll start with the importance of the setting. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. So when I say setting, when I think about Christmas Eve, what comes to your mind, Caleb, about the setting for Christmas Eve?
2: Yeah, it's, um, the goal is to be warm, the goal is to be joyful, hopeful, um, and to reflect that in, uh, whatever decorating decisions you're making, Mm -hmm. um, in making sure you're asking the right people to be greeters and that sort of thing. Uh, Because we all have those people who are great greeters in August. uh, But when you get that rush at 6.58 on Christmas Eve, uh, you can see the frazzledness on their face.
1: Yeah, that's not good uh, for the last-minute guests that are coming in on Christmas Eve. They're... To have
2: a greeter says, oh,
1: I guess there's a spot somewhere over there. Not good. So I read somewhere recently that the gospel inherently is offensive, mm. but we don't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that's important for us to remember as we're talking about setting. Um, of course, we want the church to kind of put its best foot forward that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean... Um, bright, decorated, um, joyful, as you said, and then having the right people on the right places on the bus—from the greeter to the parking lot attendants, if you have that—to uh, uh, the person who's doing the welcoming, the first person to speak on stage—the mm-hmm. um, you know, whole setting. You know, this is the Super Bowl, so go all out, yep. right? And and, and uh, put your best foot forward. Um, Let's talk about songs, Mm. right? So Christmas Eve is always um, an opportunity for the church to
2: to sing and to sing well. It's Uh, time for the nativity hymns, man. It really is. Away in a manger, O Holy Night, Silent Night. You don't need to reinvent the wheel here. So Sing the nativity hymns and sing them
1: loud. Let's talk about that. Don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, my theory on Christmas Eve services is that primarily people come for two reasons. And one is to hold a candle and the other is to sing silent night. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you don't do those two things, everything else is going to maybe miss the point for yep. a lot of people. But if you do those two things and do them well, um, you can you can do a lot of other things very well um, in the process
2: but well, I... it, it can it can be a great service but not feel like Christmas Eve if you don't do silent night holding you, a candle you got it um, we had
1: a um, a time at, a, at one of the settings of worship when we we did some more creative things musically mm. and shied away from the traditional Christmas carols and uh, that didn't go over well I'm sure it didn't. All right, so Christmas Eve, people expect to and want to sing Christmas carols. So the songs, again, keep it down the fairway here. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yep. All right. So setting, you know, put your best foot forward. Joyful, um, decorated well, um, with your your best greeters on the on on the the front
2: lines and your best people speaking into the microphone. You don't start the backup quarterback during the Super Bowl
1: <clears throat> or the Michigan game, right? Oh, sorry about that, man. Um, but let's, uh, let's just move on past that. I see you're grieving right now, Caleb. i I triggered something in you with that. I apologize. So setting songs and let's talk about sermon.
2: Yeah. Um, so when I was a young pastor, uh, I was dumb and, uh, I said, Oh, I need to preach my best sermon of the year it needs to be, you know, find some little nuance here in Luke 2 that no one's ever found before and really just, you know, do some cutesy things. No, no. It's Christmas Eve. Like, save your cutesiness for August 3rd, right? Like, Christmas Eve simply share the good news yeah. that unto us a child is born, yeah. unto us a son is given. Yeah. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Almighty God.
1: That was a great relief to me in my ministry development as well when I realized that I don't have to come up with something brand new here. right? Yeah. That and, and what dawned on me... Uh, at one point in my my life in ministry, I thought to myself, you know, what if I had the opportunity to travel on Christmas Eve to another location in the world? And let's say I, I ended up in Scotland mm-hmm. right, or somewhere in the UK for Christmas Eve. Um, and I found this old stone church... And I take the family, and we go to this old. There's 85 to 100 Saints, Scottish Saints, Saintly Scots, Saintly Scots. That's it. That's a nice uh, Sean Connery impression you did there. I like that. That's your only Scottish impression you
2: do, right? It's true. Okay. I, like I, have tried so hard to develop an Alistair Begg impression, and it's, it's I, just, I can't get, I can't no, get it. You can't. I think get my, it. my mouth is shaped wrong.
1: Well, stick with Sean Connery. And, I will. And keep working on it. <laughs> <laughs> But imagine, you know, we go into this church, an old stone building, and it's beautifully decorated, and the music is wonderful, and the pastor gets up to preach and decides it's time to tell a terrible joke, Hmm. right? Hmm. And, you know, unpacks something that, you know, this creative nuance that he thinks is really cool, right? And he goes on and on and on and on and on, and finally you know, we get to the nativity. I'm like, you just wasted 15 minutes of my life. Yep. Right? And the answer is, we don't need to do any of that on Christmas Eve. Right? All, all we need to do is tell the story. Because people want, people want to find the hope of Christmas. They want to, to experience the peace of Christ. And the story of Christmas, the nativity story, whether it's Luke, which is the traditional one, or Matthew as well, uh, provides us... Um, with an opportunity to to do just that, right? To just tell the story, yeah, and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's going to do with it. Yep. Okay. We have no idea what people are bringing with them into the setting. There may be people who are struggling to stay sober. Mm. There may be maybe folks in the middle of an, a domestic abusive kind of situation. Uh, people going through divorce or facing chemotherapy or what, we don't know what people, cause you get yep. so many visitors mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity to do exactly what you did just a moment ago, uh, unto us, right. Uh, a, a savior is born, right? Yep. What do you, what do you, what do you want to say about that, Caleb?
2: Well, I guess my first question is, uh, if you're going all the way to Scotland, uh, why are you going to the pastor or going to a church that the pastor has been trained to Methesco? Well, I don't know anything about
1: that. I don't know where they were trained. I'm just. My point is this, right? This isn't the time to unpack your political agenda mm. on Christmas Eve, and I've seen that happen before, right? And 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 talk, Jose y Maria, you got it, yeah, okay. And so this isn't this isn't the time to do that.
2: Christmas Is Not Your Birthday is a good Advent series and a terrible way to spend Christmas Eve. You got it. Because you have to eventually get to it's Jesus's birthday. It is his birthday. And really, the whole night should be about him. That's right. Because um, it's Messiah
1: season, man. Not Mariah season. It's Messiah season. You got it. Mm-hmm. So, so really, what this is about is, uh, using a golf metaphor... Right, You don't need to swing for the fences here, right? Just hit it down the middle of the fairway and let the wind be at your back and carry the ball where it
2: needs to go. Is that fair? I I loved how you said, we're going to use a golf metaphor, and you went straight to a baseball metaphor, but... Did I? Yeah, you said, we're going to swing for the fences. (laughs) Well, I grew up up playing golf courses on
1: cow pastures, so there were fences. (laughs) All right, we're going to we're going to hit it over the green into the cow pasture. There was a fence there,
2: but no, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, Christmas Eve is not a time for novelty.
1: That's well said.
2: Um, because ultimately, you know, we are we are telling like a central story, um, and one that is such a good story, you don't need to add flavor to it. No, you
1: don't. It stands on its own. You don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. It is relevant. Right. So we talked about setting, um, talked about songs, and we've talked about sermon, Mm -hmm. right? And I think if, if a church can get those three elements well cared for, Um, it's going to be a great Christmas Eve. It's going to be a great Christmas service, right? That's right. Um, It's the Super Bowl. It is. And as important as that is, as a big of a knife it is, it's really
2: about simplicity. I mean, here's the thing about the Super Bowl, right? The team that blocks and tackles best wins. You got that right. It's like I I remember uh, reading a story where um, – So when the uh, Raiders played the Ravens, uh, the day before the Super Bowl, the Raiders changed their offense up. It's like, for whatever reason, their coach just had this this stroke of like, ah, it's not going to work. We need to do something else. And it got really cutesy, and it didn't work at all. Right? Because ultimately, football is a game of blocking and tackling. And when it comes to sharing the, the big stories of, uh, of our faith. It's about getting the little details right, not about, you know, misdirection and razzle-dazzle. It's about just laying out the truth of the gospel, that, um, that in time, uh, the second member of the Godhead took on flesh, was born into the world. I like it. I'd like to say you can't mess
1: it up, but you can, right? And so we need to get out of our own way Mm -hmm. and uh, put Jesus front and center and uh, make it about Him. That's right.
0: And now it's time for Caleb's Library.
1: All right, welcome back to our segment of our podcast called Caleb's Library. Caleb, you got a great book to share with us today. Tell us about the author and tell us about the title of the book.
2: So this is easily one of the five best books ever written. Uh, written by St. Athanasius, the Alexandrian bishop of the 4th century, and it is called On the Incarnation. Classic. Classic. Classic of classics.
1: All right. And you have one that was... Um, the foreword is written by C.S. Lewis. Is that right?
2: Oh. the f- and So this edition and part of what makes it so special. Like, the book by itself is amazing. The foreword written by C.S. Lewis is worth the price of the book. And it's the worst part of the book. Oh, wow. I mean, just... I have here. This is the uh, this is the Saint Vladimir's Seminary Press uh, 2003 edition, and it is it is spectacular.
1: So you're telling me the part that C.S. Lewis wrote is the worst part of the book? That's right. All right. So this high hopes for this particular book for us yeah, today. But
2: but I want to point out a couple of things that, that C.S. Lewis uh, said because I think it is. It's meaningful for all of us. Um, He starts off the introduction. There's a strange idea abroad that in every subject, the ancient books should be read only by the professionals and that the amateur should content himself with the modern books. Thus, I have found as a tutor in English literature that if the average student wants to find out something about Platonism, the very last thing he thinks of doing is to take a translation of Plato off the library shelf and read the symposium. He would rather read some dreary modern book ten times as long all about isms and influences and only once in 12 pages telling him what Plato actually said. I mean, how true is that? It's very true. I mean, that's that's been the, the story of my education. You know, at least uh, up until probably grad school. But...
1: So, yeah. so the irony of this, of course, is that C.S. Lewis writing the foreword and he's saying, you know, my part's not that big of a deal. Get that's, get to the source. That's
2: exactly what he's saying. I got you. That's exactly what he's saying. That sounds like sounds like Lewis. Yeah. So, and, get, and, go and, ahead. And he, um, like, he goes on to say, you know, part of why, part of why the the old books have such value for us, is that um, all contemporary writers share a contemporary outlook. So that as much as we may think that. Um, you know, a a conservative and a liberal writer in 2023 are offering these wildly different opinions from a historical standpoint. They're as close together as can be because they're coming out of the same cultural worldview. Gotcha. Um, But that this, this value of reading, he said, and the same thing would be true if we could read books from the future, because they would also have a corrective lens to the assumptions of our culture that, you know, we don't even notice. Right. But we can't have books from the future, so we have to read books from the past. That's right. Just so, so much wisdom here um, in the worst part of this book.
1: <laughs> Let's get on to the best part of the book. Let's talk about what Athanasius had to say. Again, the title of the book is On the Incarnation. On the
2: Incarnation. So I'm, I'm
1: guessing, right, that the, the the emphasis of the book is about God putting on the flesh and... Dwelling among us, right? He's talking That's about right. the, the the deep theological truths of incarnation. Walk he, us through the some of the table of contents.
2: Yeah, so um, he starts off talking about uh, the words' role in creation. So think about John one, Colossians 1, um, 2 Peter three, right? Like this this sort of extended narrative that we have in the New Testament um, that points to. Jesus being present at creation, being the source of creation, being the source of all life. Um, And that this really is this foundational place from which the rest of our understanding of the incarnation has to come. Right. That creation, uh, while um, separate from God, is held together by God eternally. Well, in time. Um, So you have. Uh, in, in, in the third chapter, he, uh, he has this, this, this section where he's talking about Jesus as the divine word is the source of all creative energy. He is the one that keeps all of creation together. And this was true even when he was in utero. Mm. Even when he was a kid in the temple. Even when he was on the cross, even when he was saying the prisoner's free in hell, mm. at no point does Jesus cease being the one who holds all creation together. That's a really high Christology,
1: <sighs> right?
2: I mean, that's the Christology of the Church.
1: It is. And, and I would argue that I have seen that particular um, Christology forsaken, with the emphasis of the humanity of Jesus, was Jesus human? Fully, fully. Was at any point Jesus not fully divine? No, no. He was always fully divine, fully human, uh, which is really the emphasis of what he's saying here, right?
2: Yeah, and and, and always fully human. It's not like Jesus has only been human for two thousand years, right? Right, because as as the sort of being that lives outside of linear time. Right. At creation, Jesus was fully human.
1: Right. And that's a theological idea that is mind-blowing. It is. Right? And so I'm thinking right now, off the top of my head, I'm thinking about the um, experience of transfiguration. Mm. Right? And I'm I'm reminded of a story where um, there was two, two... pastor types talking about this particular experience of transformation, Um, and the idea that Jesus was transformed in front of Peter, James, and John. Hmm. It's pretty miraculous. Face shone like the sun, and clothes were dazzling white, so on and so forth. And the other pastor says, yeah, but the real miracle is Jesus was always like that. He was always full of glory, Hmm. right? They couldn't see it. Yeah. Right? And so they got to see Jesus as he's always been. And when he wasn't transformed into something different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just that his glory was revealed. The and veil re- is removed. You got it.
2: Uh, I mean, this is a, a, a sacrilegious image, but I think of. Uh in the 1989 Batman when uh, Jack Nicholson's character has the, the skin-colored uh, makeup wiped off and it reveals his white Joker face because that's who he is. That's who he is. He doesn't paint on the white face like Heath Ledger. No, no, no. He is the white face. You got it. You got it.
1: So where does Athanasius take us in this conversation about incarnation? He obviously sets us up with this mm-hmm. understanding of very high Christology, but what does all that mean for us? Where does he go with this?
2: Yeah, so he uh, he works through why um, I mean in, in a in a logical way, really, um, why things had to be in Jesus' life the way they were, right? Like why his death had to be public, mm. why it had to be lifted up on a cursed tree. Mm. Um, and and ultimately he gets to the this place of of resurrection um which is where you have to go cuz that's that's a big deal um and uh he has you know last night i was um rereading this again and i uh i leaned over to to Cindy my wife and i said uh you make sure they read this at my at my funeral because he has um this this section where he's talking about the proof of the resurrection is in the way Christians live as people who no longer fear death.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, So he says, but now that the savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible, but all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and preferred To die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. But that devil who of old wickedly exalted in death, now that the pains of death are loosed, he alone, uh, it is who remains truly dead, which don't overlook that phrase, right? Right, right? The only one who is truly dead in... The new world that Jesus has brought in is, is the devil. Right. He goes on to say, there's proof of this too. For men who before they believe in Christ think death horrible and are afraid of it, once they are converted, despise it so completely that they go eagerly to meet it and themselves become witnesses of the Savior's resurrection from it. Even children hasten thus to die. And not men only, but women, train themselves by bodily discipline to meet it. So weak has death become that even women who used to be taken in by it mock at it now as a dead thing robbed of all its strength. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot as he now is, the passers-by jeer at him hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot, and all who are in Christ trample it as they pass and as witnesses to him deride it, scoffing and saying, O death, where is thy victory? Mm. O grave, where is thy sting? Wow. Wow.
1: So I'm sitting here as you're reading this, right? And this is obviously written, 4th century, yeah, right, Uh, by uh, a bishop of the church.
2: Yep, living in North Africa.
1: Right. By the way, a bishop whose episcopacy spanned 45 years, I read, 45 years, through different uh, Roman emperors, Mm -hmm. some of which liked him.
2: And some of which excommunicated him. That's
1: right. (laughs) So about 17 years of his 45-year episcopacy was in exile.
2: Athanasius Contramundum.
1: You got it. So this is a guy who is not just pontificating about death and resurrection, he's literally facing it Mm. on a regular basis in some of the challenges he he faced. Here's where I'm going with this. What does this understanding of the incarnation and the promise of resurrection, what does that mean for a new generation of people who have no hope in the future ahead of them, right? They have no hope in their government, right? Mm-hmm. They have no hope in their education system. They have no hope in the economy that they're they're inheriting. This seems to me like this is a message that uh, would resonate with a young person who says, "I don't have any hope in this world." Yeah, right.
2: That's exactly right.
1: Um, world's falling apart, and yep. and my answer is, it always has been falling apart. Yeah, right. And the only one who is capable of even holding it together, let alone renewing it, is Christ, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what Athanasius is getting at. Um, so many centuries ago, is reminding us through the words that he wrote um, that Jesus is making all things new, and the resurrection is the first proof of that, first example of God's
2: recreating the fallen world. Well, and it's it's a paradigm shift. It's a paradigm shift from, um, from you know, the, the American dream that I grew up with, you know, work hard, do what you're supposed to, you'll uh, be better off than your parents, to a, a shift that says, you know, that 50-year window of time is entirely too short yeah. to be thinking about, you know, the way God's actually work in the world.
1: Where does, this, where does this book take us? You've, you've kind of given us a, an overview. You've hit on some of the key points here regarding resurrection. Where, where does this take us?
2: Yeah, it uh, it takes us to Christmas Eve. Oh, uh, yes. Right? Um, it takes us to the message that we must proclaim, that the Savior has entered into the world and that every part of uh, his life as... As shared uh, and and passed down to us in the scriptures has purpose and meaning and and should shape the way that we live in the world.
1: No wonder the shepherds got set on fire about this, yeah, no wonder they left their flocks in the fields mm-hmm. and ran to Bethlehem to see this. That the angels had proclaimed, right? Yeah, exactly. Whereas the rest of the world went about their business, mm-hmm. um, and there's this little babe in a manger, uh, born unto Joseph and Mary, and Herod didn't put it on the, you know, the the, the newspaper the next morning. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew, yep. right? Except for those who heard the good news and responded to it. That's right. And we have this great opportunity to proclaim the good news to people who are longing to hear the good news, whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. And that's the hope of of Christ. Um, I'm gonna ask what I always ask, but I know the answer here. You recommend the book? You said earlier it's a top five book ever written.
2: I not only recommend it, I, uh, I would encourage it to be one that is read. And reread devotionally, um, at least annually.
1: So we are several weeks yet away from Christmas Eve, about three weeks out when we're recording this. This will drop maybe a week or two before Christmas. Mm-hmm. There's still time to jump on Amazon and order this book, and maybe right. maybe peruse it and read so, it. So
2: get—I mean—and this is my opinion, and you know, take it for what it is. You can get the complete works of Athanasius, Kindle version. It can be there immediately. And you also get, in that, you'll get um, the biography of St. Anthony, which, ho. oh, oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's easily a top 10 book of all time. Um, you know, you get uh, the, the discourse on the Psalms, you get uh, the letters to Marcellus, um I mean, you get uh, against uh, some of the different um, philosophies of the day. like it is like the, if you can't get the um, the Saint Vladimir's seminary press, which my guess is that that uh, that complete works is Saint Vladimir's seminary press because I don't think there are, Uh, a bunch of different publishers that are chomping at the bit to put out new translations of Athanasius. Um, But I I, I strongly recommend um, St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. Um, St. Athanasius, the life of St. Anthony. St. Athanasius, letters to Marcellus. It is, I mean, he... He is truly a doctor of, the, of a doctor of the Church, and one whose uh, devotional reading can draw us nearer to the living God.
1: I'm ordering mine right now.
2: Rightly so. Thanks for letting us... Because this is actually Cindy's copy, so I, I, I can't... Well, I mean, I could let you borrow it, but you'd no, have, no, no, no. have to bring a, it back in good it, condition. It's okay, I'm not going to take that risk. But thanks for letting us get this glimpse of this
1: um, classic work. Of, of a great leader of the, of the early church.
0: Now, for some practical wisdom for church leaders, let's open up the Pastor's Toolbox.
2: Making a little shift here, opening up our toolbox, uh, and today we're talking about what goes into hospitality, uh, especially when it comes to the Super Bowl of the church, Christmas Eve. Let me tie a little
1: bow on this, right? I like, to th- I, think, I like to think of hospitality as one of those incarnational ministries of the church, because it's literally people on the front lines putting out a, a warm handshake or a welcoming smile to the people coming into the to the facility, or even on the property, sometimes for the very first time. Hmm. And So as we think about that, especially for Christmas Eve, uh, as we said earlier, we want to put our best foot forward in, in the setting that we are um, inviting people into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be good for us to talk about hospitality um, from an incarnational perspective, an yep. incarnational ministry, um, for our toolbox today. Um, our church here at Riverside has a wonderful hospitality ministry. They've done really good work over the years. And we're going through a bit of a transition because mm-hmm. uh, one of the um, great leaders of that ministry has gone on the glory. That's right. And, uh, and she knew that that was coming, and so she kind of resigned from that a few months ago. And in her, in, in, in her own way, she scheduled... She scheduled... right. Uh, the greeters months after her her own passing. Yep. Right. So the the, the schedule of greeters was already in place, um, at least probably till the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have some new leadership stepping in, and uh, it's an opportunity to to build on that wonderful foundation. That's right. And so a couple of things I want to talk about regarding hospitality, or whether your church calls it hospitality or guest services or connections. It's, it's really that opportunity knowing that when the first three to seven minutes, mm. a, a first-time visitor likely is to make up their mind whether this is for them or not, That's right. whether or not they plan to come back. Now, folks sometimes will be very forgiving, depending on their, their, their background, but boy, you can really knock their socks off with a, a well-trained, well-staffed hospitality ministry. Um, And so let's just talk about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, For some churches, it may involve a parking lot uh, team, Mm -hmm. um, or it it may, at the very least, may include someone at the front door, Mm -hmm. uh, holding the door open, welcoming folks. Um, In our case, uh, we don't have anyone in the parking lot yet, and I'll emphasize yet. Uh, But we do have someone at each entrance Mm -hmm. and at multiple places stationed throughout the building uh, to kind of intercept people and greet them as they come in. Uh, And one of the great things I think that uh, here we have here at Riverside Church is that there's this culture of hospitality Mm -hmm. uh, that goes far beyond uh, the people that are on the schedule. Mm -hmm. And so while we do have people on the schedule and trained to, to greet and so on and so forth, um, the church as a whole has this wonderful culture of um, just w- welcoming new people. Yeah. I think of Charlie. Charlie's not a member of our church, uh, and I've seen Charlie take steps of involvement over the years. He's singing in the choir now. He's um, leading a, a, an outreach ministry. And I watch Charlie make the rounds in the sanctuary before church starts, mm. shaking hands, Welcoming people, getting people's names, and, and no one told Charlie to do that. Yeah, it's part of the culture. Yep. Right. So, I would suspect there are folks out there, especially smaller churches, perhaps that it's part of that culture of their community. It's part of the culture of the church, and they need to celebrate that and point that out mm-hmm. and leverage that so that that first-time visitors or even returning visitors say, "This, this is different."
2: Yeah, I know. Part of. Um our family, what, what appealed to us. Uh, cause we started coming, uh, several months before, um, before we knew I was coming on staff here. Um, and the first time we came on a Sunday morning, um, you know, we rolled in five minutes late as you do when you have three kids under 10 and you live half an hour away. Um, and there was like, an active fight over who got to give their seats up for us, right? Um, so, so you're telling me that there
1: were people seated during the service that already started.
2: Who looked back and saw a new family walk in late and got up and said, oh, come sit here, come sit here. And then, on the, no, 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 come sit here, come sit. Here.
1: That's awesome. I didn't even know that occurred. Um, that's wonderful. That's yeah. part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And I would suspect that there I mean,
2: are when I think about how many churches I've been in, it's like where you accidentally sit in somebody's seat yeah. and they, you know, <laughs> give you side eye as they go to their backup seat. Um, it's it, it was it was a pretty remarkable thing to to watch happen.
1: Yeah. And I would suspect that that kind of mentality does exist even here at Riverside. Uh, but we've I think tried to count the yes votes more than the no votes, and not you know we, we realize that there are perhaps are folks out there, but we're not going to we're going to elevate the
2: positive, right? Well, and we don't let those people sit in the back where uh, you know where the guests come in. That's <laughs> right. <guests> in. <laughs> hey, well, you know, I think you
1: should come sit a little bit closer. <laughs> well, sometimes we just joke about it, and mm. we just we just point out the fact that it, people are somewhat territorial and have their seats and so on and so forth. But we want to elevate
2: the positive. Um, uh, behavior of being hospitable. Well, that's one of the cool things about uh, Kim Tumbling is she refuses to sit in the same seat twice.
1: Is that right? I'll have to pay attention to that. I know they moved around this Sunday, so I'll have to, I'll have to pay more attention to that. So a couple of things I want to talk about regarding hospitality, and this comes from a book, which we'll maybe we'll circle back to for one of Caleb's library elements, uh, and we'll talk about a book I read. Um, <laughs> but this particular book uh, is called The Comeback Effect,
2: mm.
1: uh, and it's it's all about hospitality. And one of the points of the book that I want to highlight for our new team of hospitality leaders is to focus on um, feeling as much as function. Mm. So you know, we can talk about the function of greeters and holding doors open and passing out bulletins and shaking hands and giving directions, especially if you have a larger facility, where are the restrooms and mm-hmm. which, where am I going here uh, to get to the, the worship space, so on and so forth. Where yeah. are the kids' ministries, things like that. But the, the concept of focusing on feeling mm. um, as much as function and realizing that people come into a church setting, especially for the first time, um, with emotions. Yep. And we have an opportunity to impact that, influence those emotions with positive feelings and positive emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I remember a story of someone who came to Riverside, and they sat in... They're now active in our church. And they sat in their car for 30 minutes trying to get up the nerve to come in the building. And I got to believe that that's a story that could be repeated mm-hmm. over and over again of people who are trying to make the decision to come to church.
2: How many people watched for three months before getting up the nerve? To we we come hear it the all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, not uncommon for someone to 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 come in on a Sunday morning and say, "We we've been watching for six months. Yeah. I feel like we know you." That kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is mind boggling to it me, is. Um, but it's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of focusing on feeling as much as function—that's a—that's tr- a learning curve, a training point for hospitality ministry. That says you have a function to, to 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 do here, a job to do. But above that function is what kind of emotion, what kind of feeling are you looking to influence in the guest? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that says to them, I want I want to come back here. It's not manufactured, it's not contrived, I'm not talking about that, but um, we want it to feel like... We want it to feel familiar, and I hear that often, right, that says, this, this church feels familiar to me, Yeah. right? And so that concept of a hospitality team or a culture of hospitality,
2: that that focuses as much on feeling as it does on function. Yeah, I remember when... Uh, I think it was when I first started at Sulfur Growth... Uh, Tom gave me the homework to uh, start watching Bar Rescue. Are you familiar with the TV show Bar Rescue? what is that? Um, So Bar Rescue, uh, I don't know if it's even still on anymore, but it was 10 years ago. Um, And it is this consultant who basically goes into failing bars and restaurants and tells them why they're failing. And nine times out of 10, it is uh, because it is focused on – making life easy for the staff rather than accessible for the patron. Right. Um, it's about, uh, not having any sort of standards of behavior or attitude and, um, you know, letting the bare minimum go by. Um, and then just, uh, just kind of a a foolish, um, lack of attention to detail, right? So, like, you don't clean the kitchen well every night. Right. Or, you know, when you're pouring the drinks, you overpour, right? Like, you're just pouring money away, right? Right. Um, and, you know, Tom had me watch it uh, because he's like, this is this is church, right? Like, you know, we, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, people are brought in by the gospel, but it'll be stupid nonsense that makes them leave.
0: Mm.
1: Again, a comment I made earlier in a previous segment, the gospel is offensive, but we don't have to be. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And so as we present the gospel, and obviously that concept of the gospel being offensive is the reminder that we're we're sinners in need of a savior, and that Mm -hmm. is offensive to a lot of people, that mindset, especially in our modern culture where I'm okay and you're okay. But the reality is the gospel message of the gospel is the, you need a savior, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so, but we don't have to be offensive in presenting that idea, especially as we welcome people into the life of the church and tell them the story, the good news of God's love for us. Grouchiness
2: is not a fruit of the spirit.
1: Oh, sometimes it feels like it is, right? It doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be lived out that way. Uh, like, we, we, we weren't
2: baptized in lemon juice, so
1: put a smile on your face, right?
2: <laughs> Which and you yeah, like, the, there is a, a little bit of a of a danger. I think we need to push back on this. Like, you know, we don't want to be dishonest, no. You know, or inauthentic, or whatever language you want there. Um, but the things that we do have control over, um, you know, we can we can make better efforts, right? Like I have a, uh, I have a friend who, you know, he's like, you know, I just am who I am, right? Like at a certain point I am who I am. It's like, that's not the gospel. No, (laughs) it's not that you are who you are. Right. It's that who you are is marred and foggy and covered in barnacles. And that God wants to restore you to who you were created to be. Right. Um, so you know the whole like well, you know, and, and part of that is, you know, a person who is immature and grouchy you shouldn't put on your greeting team. That's a good point. That's a real good point. Um, because you know the reality is there will be immature, grouchy people in the church. There's no two ways around it. Um, because the gospel is for the immature, grouchy person too and they need to be set free from you know, the the sin and death that, sure. that entraps us all. But you don't necessarily need to put them on the front line of greeting new people.
1: No, and that's the opportunity for pastors and leaders to say, okay, let's think strategically about who we're, we're going to make the, 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 the first yeah. face that someone sees and the first person that someone engages, and uh, being able to put a joyful feeling right? On the face of the church as people are coming in. Um,
2: And and I, I, instead of the word joyful, I would choose the word warm because if I come in and I'm miserable, someone who is uh, manufacturing joy that, that um, I am incapable of seeing as anything other than phony. Mm doesn't do much for me, but someone who is compassionate and warm and, um, and I don't have to, I don't have to meet them in their happiness and glee, but I can just acknowledge and be thankful that they are there and they see me. Sure. Um, but you know, we may be, we, we may be asking for too much.
1: Potato, potato maybe. right. And so someone told me once at a previous church, they said, you have this ability to smile and talk at the same time. And I said, and I smiled at him, I said, I do? <laughs> I do? <laughs> you say so, huh? Uh-huh. Um, and so all I'm saying is um, the the message of the gospel is a joyful message of hope and salvation and, and the love of God in Christ. Is it offensive? When you think about it, it surely is
2: if if it's not you're probably doing it wrong you
1: got that right right and so the idea of focusing on feeling as much as function is one of those key parts of hospitality another part i think i would say is is thinking through a person's experience at a local church scene by scene mm. meaning that when you know we've been here for sunday after sunday after sunday and we come we get blind spots as to what it feels like to walk in the building yeah right uh, or to walk in and experience worship, so on and so forth. Um, and we have one particularly, particular perspective because it's you know it's what we experience. Yep. How important it is to get the perspective of others. What's it look like to sit where they sit, to see what they see when they come in? That's walking through scene by scene. Um, what does it look like to park my car?
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: What does it look like to find the entrance to the building? What does it look like to walk into a North X full of or lobby, whatever language a church calls calls it, full of strangers who are in their little click groups talking and mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know where to take my kids and I don't know where to fit in, yeah. and I don't know where the restrooms are and I don't know where the sanctuary is. Um, again, walking scene by scene through a visitor's experience. Uh, where am I supposed to sit? You know, what is this, is there anyone here like me? All those, all those kind of questions that need to be asked, so that a, a guest's experience is um, as uncomplicated as we can make it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that make sense? Yep. Um, and those are conversations that we can have with a hospitality team, so that they they learn to see the the experience through the eyes of a visitor.
2: Well, and I like the way you said it that. You know we have the way we come into the building, and you know our typical flight path, and that's sort of what we see, and we don't see the other parts. It's so like I, I don't think I could even tell you what, like the the west side of our building looks like. Like I know there's there are there's like playground equipment over there. I think right. I couldn't tell you what playground equipment it is, but like I have I have no reason to ever to be over there. Right. You know, um, it's, it's reminiscent to, uh, um, you know, when, when you see a picture of yourself taken by somebody else and it's not the mirror view that you're used to, Yeah. you go, when did I get so fat? Uh, at least I go, when did I get uh, so fat? Yeah, well, I, I thought I was doing better. <laughs> but then, you know, you see the picture it's like, oh, it's a different, Shamu. Pers- different perspective. Right. Yeah. And so it's helpful
1: for, uh, hospitality team and leaders to get a different perspective. And one of the things I think is important is for those leaders to visit another church, right, and say, oh, this is the dissonance of a visitor. This is what this feels like, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I accidentally sat in someone's spot, you know, all those things. Yep. So that they can realize that the things that they're accustomed to, uh, other people are not. Yep. Right.
2: Um, so, well, and I, I think that's that's a helpful um, a helpful thing for the lay people on your hospitality team. You know, to say, hey, um, we are we are giving you permission and actually encouraging you, like, hey, go go check out this other church, just to see what it's like to be in a different church. Right. Um, to to see, it's like, oh, when I went in, this happened, and I didn't feel good. And it's like, come back and make sure that doesn't happen here. You got it. Again, focus on feeling as much as function.
1: Think scene by scene and walking through a visitor's experience. Um, and the last thing I would say is just um, one of the points that this author makes is recover quickly. Mm. And the idea is, is follow up. Mm. How are you following up with uh, a visitor? Um, and we don't do that well here because we, mm-hmm. we, you know, with COVID, we quit taking, yeah. gathering information. Right. Yeah. And so we've kind of let that be a little more organic and let people, and maybe that's okay in the culture in which we live here in mm-hmm. Columbus, Ohio, that yeah. we, we let people move at their own pace. Um, and I, we've had issues with visitors who would prefer, we were a little more aggressive getting their information. Mm-hmm. And, but I think not, you know, 98% of the folks are like, yeah we're cool with that. Yep. And we'll move at our own pace. And so we've, uh, I will say, err,ed on the side of grace, and allow people to, to to provide the information they want to give us when it's time. Yeah. But I would say one of the way re- to recover quickly in that process is, and we hit, Riverside does do a nice job of this, is is simply remembering, hey, you were here last week.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had people bring me people on a Sunday morning. This is so and so. This is their second time here. Yeah. Like, yep. how do you know that? Well, they talk to them. Yep. Right. And so that that recover quickly concept is part of the culture I think here at Riverside that maybe we can build upon mm-hmm. and put in some strategies to to help folks connect better and more quickly. But right now it's one of those organic experiences that happens really without any any leadership given to it. It's mm-hmm. people do it, uh, which I think is is pretty cool.
2: Yeah, um, I remember when uh, when we were at the Y. Uh... We had swag for first-time guests, sure, um, and that was that was the cool thing, you know, eight ten years ago.
1: Um, C- coffee mugs,
2: uh, tumblers. Oh, tumblers, even better. Yeah, gotcha. So you could do the hot or the cold, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I I think, um, I think the majority of those tumblers we uh, handed out probably went right in the trash can. Because they aren't ready to rep us. Like, we haven't earned their trust yet. Right. Like, they they don't want to give us that advertising. Um, And I was talking to a a friend who's a pastor down in Georgia. And he was saying they did away entirely with first-time guest stuff. Um, And if you are going to do something for first-time guests, uh, I think something consumable, so like a loaf of bread or something, is is the way to go. Um but what they what they do have is they said as he said uh we make sure we have a swag table so that when you're ready to trust us you can get your t-shirt and your your mug and you know do your thing. Um that that was that, that was wise. Um and, and probably a better way of better way of thinking about it than like you know rush down the first hey you're a first time person hey here so here's your new here's your new favorite cup. Yeah, which was the language that, that we got sure you know, ten years ago from. Um,
1: and there's the... a bit of a bait and switch feeling to it. Hey, we'll give you this T-shirt if you give us your email address.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and
1: I don't want to go down that path, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I've noticed a couple of things. I was over at, at Reynoldsburg, uh, I think Good Friday last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine was preaching over there, and so um, I went over at the noon service. And uh, they did a wonderful job of greeting uh, and, I I say, acknowledging visitors. And they had a, a cell phone number that you could text, mm-hmm. right, if you wanted to, and connect that way. And a little form popped up on the phone, and you could give them your information if you wanted to. I've seen churches do QR mm-hmm. codes. If you want to do it, here, you scan it. Yep. I kind of like that because it puts the ownership back on the visitor to say, yeah, I'll give you my phone number. Or I'll give you my... Yeah, but it needs to be on on their timetable and and yep. really not ours and not a bait and switch. Yep. But I like that concept of being ready for them when they're ready. Yeah. And come get the Riverside Church T-shirt or whatever it is, or the tumbler, or the gluten-free bread, the Cindy baked or whatever it is. And you
2: can get the uh, the brand new book coming out of Riverside Press. We haven't talked about that yet, have we? I, I, I we may have last week. I can't yeah. remember. But.
1: We'll get there, right? The oh. the Riverside Gutenberg Press is just getting fired up.
2: Oh, boy. The glue is in. First book's almost done. It's exciting. Yeah, it is.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. We've had a good conversation today. Uh, the big idea, Christmas Eve, Caleb's Library, Athanasius on the Incarnation, and our ministry toolbox conversation around hospitality and that idea of... Um, just being a, an incarnational ministry where we welcome folks into the mm-hmm. life of the church, I think it's a healthy conversation. Anything else you want to say before we wrap things up today, Caleb? No, I,
2: I think we've, uh, I think we've greased the pig. Yes, we have. Indeed, I... we have. We're heading towards
1: Christmas. Have a great uh, rest of the Advent. And uh, we'll see you next time. It's Messiah season, people. It is Messiah season. All I want for Christmas I'm is you. i you off you. right now. That's
2: enough.
0: for listening to the Recovering Methodism podcast. We hope your heart has been strangely warmed. Be sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. God bless.